In June of 1987, standing in front of the Berlin Wall, Ronald Reagan gave a historic speech. He said in part, behind me stands a wall that encircles the free sectors of this city. Part of a vast system of barriers that divides the entire continent of Europe. From the Baltic south, those barriers cut across Germany in a gash of barbed wire, concrete, dog runs, and guard towers. Still an instrument to impose upon ordinary men and women the will of a totalitarian state. And later, in that same speech, came the now famous words. General Secretary Gorbachev, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It was a direct assault on the 20th century's most prominent political and social division among mankind. And history is full of painful walls, barriers which divide and alienate men. They create hostility and suspicion and envy between nations and peoples. And they ostracize those outside the barrier. And they can and they do lead to contempt to pride on the part of those who feel that they are on the right side of the division. And yet, behind, underneath, all of this sad division lies a basic divide. A primitive divide in the heart of the human race. And here I'm talking about a social or a political divide, if you will. A social divide more momentous than the Cold War divide between the West and the Soviet bloc nations. More momentous than the divide between Protestants and Catholics. Namely the divide, the historical divide, between Jews and Gentiles. Now that may sound odd to some of you, and I think we don't view this as the fundamental division among peoples, largely because we do not let Holy Scripture tell us how to think about human divisions. For many, the divisions between whatever, Democrat and Republican, between rich and poor, between the United States and everybody else, these constitute the basic human divisions in their minds. They are not. History's first, its deepest, its most significant division is the Jew-Gentile divide. In our text this morning, the New Testament lesson from Ephesians 2, we're going to see that it's one of the goals of the many splendored redemption which has come in Christ to tear down this wall. And the implications of tearing down that wall are enormous for the whole human race. A tremendous hostility, even hatred, has existed 
and still exists, sadly, in many quarters between Jews and Gentiles. In the first century, when Paul was writing, this suspicion and hatred was palpable. In the book of Acts, in chapter 21, we read that these Jews from Asia saw Paul in the temple. And when they saw him, they stirred up the crowd. And they had Paul arrested. Simply because, the text goes on to tell us, that they thought that he had brought a Gentile into the temple. And this hostility was very much alive. Dangerous, even, throughout the apostles' ministry. In fact, archaeological digs have unearthed some interesting background here. In 1871, excavations near the, the temple in Jerusalem, the temple site, uncovered a sign on the temple grounds near the wall which separated the inner courts where the Jews could mingle from the outer courts where the Gentiles were. The sign they found was a solemn warning. Here's how it read. No outsider, that is Gentile, no Gentile, shall enter the protective enclosure around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for the ensuing death. So our text this morning, Ephesians 2, verses 11-22, through 22, is going to focus on the overcoming of this division. We'll make three points. Three points. Alienation, peacemaking, and full equality. Alienation, peacemaking, full equality. So the first thing is to note the state of alienation. Verse 11. Ephesians 2, verse 11 begins, Therefore remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth. So Paul's telling us, you and I, his Gentile readers, remember your past estate. Don't forget that you Gentiles who are called uncircumcised, you can, you can even sense the hostility in Paul's language here, you're called uncircumcised by those who are called the circumcision. You were once, Paul says, separate from Christ, as verse 12 indicates. And to be without Christ is spelled out. It means we were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. Aliens from the public covenantal community. And as such, we Gentiles had no portion as citizens. We're outside the borders of Israel. And this means we're foreigners, the text says, to the covenants of the promise. The promise here refers to the the great promises made to Abraham. And that promise structures. And that promise determines and shapes all the covenants of the Bible. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant, the Davidic covenant. All the covenants are unified by the promise made to Abraham. And from that rich covenantal history grounded in the life of Israel, you and I, all Gentiles, were once cut off. We were, the text says, strangers. Not only were we not citizens in the state 
or the commonwealth of Israel. We had no place in the blessings of God on His chosen people. Paul says at the end of verse 12, we had no hope, therefore. No hope. We were without God in the world. Now last week, we viewed from a different angle in Ephesians 2 how bleak and dark our past was. But here, we see the same thing. It's not simply that we were alienated from God. To be alienated from God meant we were cut off from His covenant people. And to be cut off from His covenant people is to be cut off from God. The two things belong together. Paul doesn't just stop and say, look, you were dead in sin. You followed the course of the world. You were under the principalities and powers. He goes on and says, look, this means you were cut off from Israel. You were cut off from the covenants and from the promises and from the commonwealth and from the communion of the saints. So we were Christless, but we were also stateless, hopeless, and without God in the world. That's the condition that Gentile alienation took. So our second point is the peacemaking. That's our alienation. Verse 13 Verse 13 strikes the note of contrast. But now, but now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away. Far away here is a spiritual term. It's not a spatial term, even though many of us were spatially far away. You have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For He Himself, the text says, is our peace. And He has made the two groups into one. Christ Himself, in virtue of His death, is notice the text says, our peace. He's not simply your peace and my peace. He's our peace. And the our here means that He's established peace. Shalom between Jew and Gentile. He's our peace. He's made the two groups into one. There are three things which the death of Christ has done which His atoning work have done to establish peace and to bring you and I near. Near to God and near to the people of God. Three things. The first is that He destroyed the barrier, the text says. This dividing wall of hostility by setting aside the law with its commands and regulations. Now I mentioned there was a barrier, an actual dividing wall at the temple which kept the Gentiles out. Paul's alluding to that when he uses this language of barrier or dividing wall or hostility. But he has the law itself in mind because the law was a barrier. The law was a dividing wall which kept us out. It created hostility. It separated Israel from the Gentiles. This aspect of the law, the text says, Christ set aside in His flesh, meaning by His death. Now, we need to take some care here. Christ has not abolished the moral law as it's enshrined in the Ten Commandments. Jews and Gentiles are both. We both stand under obligation to keep the commandments, such as you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not kill. You shall not covet. What the text here has in view are the ceremonial laws which mark the Jews off as distinct from the Gentiles. Things like the dietary laws and circumcision. Everything in the law which served to exclude you, which served to condemn the Gentiles, is abolished by the death of Christ. 
That's the first way that He's made peace. Peace between us and the ancient people of God. Secondly, verse 15 tells us Christ did this so as to create in Himself one new man. One new humanity out of the two, thus making peace. This statement is so astonishing. And what it says about the church is so radical that most Christians simply fail to grasp it. Christ did not come to make Gentiles into Jews. Nor did He come merely to get us and the Jews, Jews and Gentiles, to coexist together in some peaceful arrangement. The text says He came to create something new. One new man. And that means the body of Christ in the earth, of which you are a part, is a completely new entity. Yes, it's rooted in Israel's history and in the covenant promises, but it has a fundamental newness to it. And this new man, of which you are a part, is neither Jew nor Gentile. This new man is what the third century church father, Clement, Clement of Alexandria, North African father, he called the Christian church the third race. Which is why the sermon is titled The Third Race. Neither Jew nor Gentile. A wholly unheard of race known now to the world simply as Christians. And so Paul is saying here that Christian is a term the body of Christ is a reality and Christian is a term more decisive than Jew or Gentile. More decisive than any ethnic Irish, Italian, or any national American or French or Canadian designation. To be a Christian is to be a member of the third race of the one new man in the earth. And the third thing Christ's death did to establish peace is in verse 16. He reconciled them both, Jew and Gentile, in one body through the cross. The cross is not simply about our individual reconciliation to God, though it surely is about that. We saw that last week. It's about the horizontal level of reconciling mankind to one another overcoming this Jew-Gentile divide. Body here in the text does not mean Christ's physical body which died. It means the new people, the church, the body of Christ. And so this new thing, this third race, which you are, is a foretaste. It's the beginning of humanity being remade. Now with its deepest Jew-Gentile division healed in Christ. Reconciliation to God. Reconciliation to one another happen together and they can never be separated. That is how Christ creates peace. Tearing down history's most basic wall of division. And that peace has been propagated in the earth. It has come to us and we've embraced it. And verse 17 tells us how this peace spreads in the world. It says, He came and preached peace to those who were far away. That's us, Gentiles. And to those who were near, Jews. Now what's interesting in this text 
is that Christ did not actually preach to those who were far off. He did not preach to Gentiles. He was sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But through the apostolic preaching, especially of Paul, this peace was preached to Gentiles and continues to be preached by Christ's ministers today. And so this turns out to be one of the great extraordinary texts in the New Testament on the dignity of preaching. Because it tells us that Christ Himself is the one who preaches and proclaims peace to you through the apostolic ministry, through the church's ministers throughout history. Christ is preaching peace to you and has preached peace to you. So what's the point of this peacemaking? The point to grasp here about this peacemaking of Christ is simple. This reconciliation between Jew and Gentile, this reconciliation and peace in the body of Christ and as the body of Christ, it is integral to the Gospel. It's not tacked on as an afterthought to your own reconciliation to God. It's woven into the very design of Christ's death. And indeed, into the design of faithful apostolic proclamation. He has come and He's made peace. He's preached it to us. The third point, then, are the results of this, what we've called full equality. Verse 18 says that through Him we both, notice that, we both, Jew and Gentile now, they always had access of a sort. Limited access in the Old Testament through the priesthood. But Gentiles had access. Now, verse 18 says, we both have access to the Father by one Spirit. Access is the key. Right? Walls and barriers prevent access. That's what the dividing wall vividly depicted in that 1871 sign around the temple's inner court forbade. Gentiles have no access. Now you have it. You have full sanctuary privileges. You can come unafraid into the holy place. But this is not simply because God has redeemed you as an isolated individual. It's because God has redeemed you and He's reconciled you to the historic people of Israel, to the covenants and to the commonwealth and to their promises. And this means, verse 18 says, that you and I are no longer strangers and aliens. We're legal immigrants. The text calls us fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. Now, I know it's difficult to grasp. Believe me, I'm aware of the challenge as a preacher with a text like this because it does seem a little far off. It's difficult to grasp the glory and the wonder of this. The fact that we're sitting here doing what we're doing. We tend to think that it's just natural and normal for us Gentiles to be worshiping Israel's God. But it's not. Not at all. Think, think about the situation like this. You have this ancient Near Eastern world, and the world is swarming. It's teeming with gods. Every tribe, every nation, every little town has them. And then there's one guy in that world, that polytheistic world. He is from what is today northern Iraq. He's from an idol-worshipping family, like everybody else, named Abram. And he claims that one of these gods 
called Elohim, has called him to go down to Canaan. And he goes down there and this God forges a really small Semitic tribe into a people. And that people are subsequently enslaved in Egypt with its own raft of thousands of gods for 400 years. And then that bunch of people comes out as an obscure band of nomads into Palestine. And that God forges the nation of Israel. Gradually shatters and banishes all the other gods from human history. Revealing Himself as the one true God, the God of Israel. And that stubborn people continues to disobey that God. They're exiled, and then they're restored, and then they're enslaved again under Roman oppression. And in the fullness of time, that little people bring forth their long-promised Messiah. And here you are, a kid from New Jersey of all places, a New Yorker, worshiping that God with the full privileges of that ancient, obscure, faraway people. The unspeakable wonder of this is perpetually lost on this. A big part of preaching is to place wonder where it needs to be. We think, well, it's just normal for us to worship this Yahweh. What could be more natural? After all, we're Americans. America's a Christian nation. What could be more natural than Gentile worshipers of the God of Israel? The whole thing's a big yawn. Jewish Christians, on the other hand, now that is really strange. Really odd. So we're sort of tricked here by the illusion of having been in purely or almost exclusively Gentile churches for hundreds of years. We're like the, uh, the Persian astrologer priests, who, the Magi, who come with their gifts to the baby Jesus to worship, and they bow down and they present their gifts, and then we say, hey, what are all these Jews doing around here? This is why Paul celebrates this. This is the same, this is the connected reality to celebrating your salvation. So he continues to celebrate this inclusion in verse 20. He says, We've been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, the cornerstone. He's the one on which the whole building rests and by which it's measured. And the building in verse 21 is called a holy temple. That temple in Jerusalem with that dividing wall, that was destroyed. Destroyed by Roman armies in 70 AD. But now corporately you are the temple of God. And this means that the church is God's great cosmic building project. It's the construction site of the world's reconciliation. And all of this is seen in verse 22, the end of it, that we might be built together as a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. God overcomes these barriers so that He might dwell in our midst. The end of reconciliation is always communion, peaceful communion with the triune God. In fact, this is the end of history. When the church is seen in the book of Revelation descending in glory from heaven, 
the cry goes up and it says, now the dwelling of God is among men. There was, there was an Australian bishop. His name was John Reed. He tells a story about driving a school bus. The bus carried both white children and aborigines. And they were always fighting. And one day, tired of the squabbling between the different races, he pulls the bus over. He turns around, he goes down the aisle, he says to the white boys, what race are you? What color are you? They said, we're white. And he says, no, you are green. Anyone who rides on my bus is green. Now, what color are you? And the white boys replied, we're green. Then he goes to the aborigines and said, what color are you? And they said, we're black. He said, no, you are green. Anyone who rides on my bus is green. So the aborigines said, okay, okay, we're green. He thought this would resolve things. And it seemed like it might resolve the fighting. Until a few miles down the road, he hears a boy, he's driving the bus again, and a few miles down the road, he hears a boy in the back say, all right, light green on this side, dark green on that side. <laughs> the, the bishop was on to something very profound, right? Human division and alienation, fighting. What was needed was a brand new race a brand new race called the Greens. So he just created it. He created a third race. No whites, no blacks. Everybody's green. But of course he couldn't make it happen. Right? Our natures resist this deep and profound reconciliation. Being green, that is being Christian, right? being green always seems to take a backseat to some other loyalty. So this text is an announcement that in spite of appearances sometime, the deep hostility between Jews and all Gentiles, and between both of them and God, has been overcome. That indeed a third race, the Greens, the body of Christ, has been created through the cross. There is no longer Jew nor Gentile. Slave nor free. Male nor female. Greek or barbarian. A new thing has happened. Now, what does this mean? Well, it's really quite simple. This is why the church has to be a peacemaking community. This is why keeping our relationships in good repair is central to the witness of the gospel. We're to be a community in which we seek reconciliation. This is hard work. Americans often seek the path of least resistance on these things and thus never come into the depths of true reconciliation and peace. We're to seek reconciliation in our homes, with one another, and as far as we are able with all men. This text goes to the root of why the church abhors anti-Semitism. This is why the church abhors racism. This is why the church abhors every form of sinful alienation and oppression and hostility among men. 
Christ has come and He has made and He preaches and He continues to preach peace. And blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. See to it that you're snugly fitted into this body. Take your place in the third race with all these glorious privileges of access to the God of Israel and fellowship with reconciled Jews and Gentiles from all the ages. Amen.